Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 258, The Monstrum Opus of Sherlock Holmes. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack-in-office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello there, and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, you're looking opulent this evening. <laughs> Am I really opulent? Well, it was well, either I that thought... or monstrous. I, I, I picked <laughs> one of the two words out of the title. Oh, I like that. I like that. I can opine that you look opulent as well. I like that. Not monstrous, but opulent. I like that. Very good. Well, populous, opulous, who, whoever knows. Uh, I'm, I'm wearing my Oculus, so. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're never going to get the money back for that on eBay. Sorry. Uh, it's a major rift. Well, anyway, we are here at I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. You can find the show notes for this episode at iHose.co slash iHose258. All lowercase, that'll take you directly to the IHearOfSherlock.com website to this specific show's notes. You can also look through uh, what we've got in the notes section of the podcast catcher that you happen to be listening to us on. Uh, whatever works for you, that's fine, but just make sure you're subscribed to us. And if you're in uh, Apple Podcasts, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and or a review, that's up to you. We'd love to hear your feedback hear what you think of our little show which we have described as fresh air for sherlockians uh, as we do these interviews here and the interview here today that we're going to be doing is always uh, welcome to people that have been with us here before we'll talk a little bit about that but first let's tell you a little bit about each one of them brad kefauver is still bitter he wasn't asked to write for this collection and uh, was condemned instead to work in the galleys. But he still manages somehow to enjoy all of the writers within the collection of the monstrum opus of Sherlock Holmes. Well, that is, despite his utter jealousy of all of them. Uh, 
Yet, he's also a host of the Watsonian Weekly Podcast, the editor of Sherlockian Chronology Timelines, and he blogs under the title of Sherlock Peoria, among other creative endeavors. Yet, he's still a bitter, bitter old Sherlockian, and possibly a monster in his own right. But if you're collecting essays for a book, well, please invite him to write something, and maybe he'll be less bitter. Rob Nunn is the Gassagene of the Parallel Case of St. Louis and a member of many other Sherlockian groups. He's the co-editor of The Finest Assorted Collection, author of The Commonplace Book and The Criminal Mastermind of Baker Street, and he's the recipient of the Beacon Award for the Sherlock Holmes unit that he teaches to his fifth grade students. He lives in Edwardsville, Illinois with his wife and daughter and interviews other Sherlockians on his blog, Interesting Though Elementary. Brad and Rob, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hi, glad to be here. Excellent. Well, uh, you are both repeaters here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Brad, you were with us last on episode 56 where we talked about your blog, Sherlock Peoria, all the way back in season seven, lo, these 10 years ago. So uh, I, I hope you, you're, you're all limbered up and ready for this. Oh, yeah. I had a Watson Kaiparina before this. <laughs> there you go. And, and you've been doing a little bit of podcasting since we last spoke, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Um, we've got the Watsonian Weekly, which is the John H. Watson Society podcast goes out every Sunday night usually it's about 15 minutes when it's going well and then occasionally we do Sherlock Holmes is real which is something Paul Thomas Miller and I do that's a little off the wall well not for him <laughs> no <laughs> or for you really um, but it, it's great to have you back here and we will have links to both uh, Sherlock Holmes is real and the Watsonian weekly for uh, listeners who happen to be fans of podcasts. Uh, at least we hope they are, given that they're listening to this. And Rob Nunn, you join us here again for the fourth time. You were here with us uh, first on episode 142 to talk about the criminal mastermind of Baker Street, and then again in episode 220 with your interesting, though elementary, blog. And uh, most recently, in episode 244 with Peter Eckrich, where you talked about the finest assorted collection. So, Rob, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, uh, gentlemen, this is uh, a, a very different book, the monstrum opus of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, where did the genesis of uh, this idea come from in the first place? Yeah, with a, a strange book like this, you think it would come from Brad Kefauver, but uh, actually it was Ray <laughs> Betzner. <laughs> it was actually Ray Betzner's fault. Um, Ray is, uh, for those of you that don't know, you know, a well-known Sherlockian out on the East Coast, and he has this great theory behind the Copper Beaches and uh, the story with uh, the sun in there, Edward Rucastle. And I, I heard and read that a couple times, and we thought, what if there's other people out there who could come up with weird things along the lines of Ray? And uh, we threw out the net and 
there are some weird Sherlockians out there. Well, I mean, that's that's almost uh, uh, repetitive in, in some ways. <laughs> I mean, every, every Sherlockian has a little bit of weirdness about them. I think that's what is so charming about this hobby. Um, and I, I don't... I'll I'll leave it to the two of you since you're the editors to uh, remark on any spoilers. Uh, I don't I don't want to give away any of these because they all have a very um, each each story has its own unique approach. Each essay has its own approach. So, um, but when you think about uh, the weirdness of uh, these stories, the weirdness of Sherlockians in general. Um, where do you think that comes from? Well, I think there's a natural inclination because, you know, Holmes, I don't know, it's almost like the thing you can't have because Holmes was very much, there's no vampires, there's no ghosts, that, you know, no supernatural. It was all about logic and science. So it's almost like this drive is to, like, put him with the one thing that isn't in the stories and isn't ever going to be in the stories just because it isn't. It's like black market. I like that. Uh, it, it's the Sherlock Holmes that you always wanted but never could have. I think there's a fine line between uh, weirdness and creativity. Um, if you tilt hmm. your head one way, it's one of those words. And if you tilt your head the other way, you just look at it and think, oh, wow. Well, it, and it seems to me like that could apply to some of the original canon. Are there, so. there, are there any stories that come to mind that you can pull out rob that you think oh well that's weird or it's uh, it's uh, slightly the other way um yeah i think the lion's mane always stands out to me as mm. just kind of a an outlier in the canon it is you know told from a different point of view it's in a completely different setting and the quote unquote villain isn't even of human form so um I think you look at it one way, it's a weird story. If you look at it another, it's a, a wonderful tale of homes in retirement. Well, that's really, that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, and there are lots of examples in the canon of nature intruding on the action of the characters. You know, I think of the Grimpen Mire, for example, you know, this uh, spooky atmosphere and the spectral hound. Um, so there is, I suppose, some precedent for it. What? Tell me a little bit about Nathaniel Barker Harris, because I was intrigued to find um, his his backstory. His, you know, mother apparently was the hostess of a TV show that was uh, focused on uh, uh, horror movies and uh, uh, you know monster movies and things like that. That sounds fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, she was a creature feature hostess in a little TV station in Moorville, Kansas, if that should tell you something about the nature of the Barker family. That just kind of fit into the theme where, you know, Nathaniel Barker Harris wound up being our kind of Rod Serling for this book, giving a little, like kind of like in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, how they'd always have a little intro to each story. So he kind of introduced each article in this. Ah. Well, I and I have to ask this because that introduction was intriguing to me. Um, Carnella Carney Barker. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Um, the mother of Nathaniel Barker Harris. Is, is Nathaniel Barker Harris an actual 
person or are you two kind of giving us a wink and a nod here? I would have to say the wink and the nod there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now I feel a little better about that because I was, it's, it's so well done that immediately when you're reading the introduction to just get into this book, you're sucked right in. Right. And I think that is the charm of these stories is they, they take us to a familiar area but through a different portal and through a different experience. And in some ways, we're asked to truly suspend our disbelief. But in other ways, we're being led down a path. And by the time we reach the end of the path, we look back and we go, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And I can see how I got here. Well, that was one of the things we went for was, you know, there are so many books of pastiches out there now and stuff that we went, okay, let's do the supernatural kind of thing. But do articles because I've always liked the scholarly articles that take the canon and take it off in some direction and give you a perspective on a story that you just would never have got from the story. It, you know, helps our enjoyment of it, I think. Mm. So then we took that and put two rules down. We said, because Holmes said, no ghosts need apply, no ghosts for this book. <laughs> and since he said vampires were rubbish, no vampires either. So we <laughs> cut those two out. Yeah. But that still leaves the field wide open for all other kinds of influences, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, and we got all other kinds. Holy cow, yeah. <laughs> so so how, how did you go about tracking down authors who would not only be willing to follow those uh, ground rules that you set out, but who would also be creative enough to be able to imagine uh, a, a, a parallel universe, as it were, a different way of looking at uh, the stories that we're all familiar with. Uh, we reached out to people that we knew that we thought, hey, you, you seem like you may be interested in writing about the macabre. You, you, uh, you seem weird. You seem weird. Come along with us. <laughs> That's how we got Bert. Um, but, um, but then, you know, we also just posted an open call saying, Hey, this is what we're thinking of doing. We put it out on Twitter and Facebook and on each of us have our own blog. So we we put it on there and we got a few names that were new to us and, uh, it was a joy and a delight. I mean, um, it, it was so much fun to see new people say, Hey, this is my kind of thing. I, you know, I can't sit around digging through old encyclopedias, but I can get creative and then back that up with some mythological lore. So they really kind of came from all corners. Mm. Yeah. And, and you, you carried that through in the design of the book, too. I really have to ask you about the cover, because there are, are so many scenes in Harry Potter and in other movies and TV shows that involve old books that are taken down from a shelf and they're full of spells and things like that. And the cover of this beautifully reproduces some of the texture and the look and the feel and the lettering of those old forgotten books. You never really know what's inside of them. Who did the design of the cover? It's really fabulous. Oh, I did that design. And there's a, if there's a secret Sherlockian connection there because it's from an old book that was Insects Abroad by the Reverend J.G. Wood. And I kind of took a couple of his insects and altered them a little bit and changed the title and everything to make that. Oh, well done. It really is. I mean, to me, as you're looking at this book, not only when it's in your hands, 
uh, but looking at it online, uh, and we'll, we'll have an image so uh, people can see the, the cover. Um, when you're looking at it online, it does look like one of those old, you know, hardbound uh, books from the early 1900s or so. And when I received my copy in the mail, I was, well, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I was disappointed to find that it was paperback. But as I'm holding the paperback in my hand, I can almost reach out and feel how I think it should feel if it were hardbound. And it is just, it's gorgeous to hold in my hand as well as, uh, you know, a pleasure to, to hold in my hands that I read it. So well, Brad really created a beautiful piece on the front and back of this book. I, I can just look at it forever and constantly yeah. find something new that I appreciate. Yeah. I just, I can't say enough good things about the design. So, um, but that's, that's minor compared to uh, what we want to talk with you about, uh, you know, with regard to the book. So, um, there's one thing as as we've been talking about this and i think rob you um you 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 called it out uh, earlier about the the perspective you know tilting your head one way versus another it i would imagine that as you're looking at these stories and essays the authors need to be able to pull that off they need to be able to kind of walk that line where there's a level of believability and uh, they're, they're convincing you that this different perspective that they're taking is worth doing. Because it's not, if, if it's done in a ham-handed way, suddenly the veil is off and, you know, we're, we're all kind of behind the scenes and it's not as fun. You know, kind of like you did with the introduction with Nathaniel Barker Harris. Uh, it was done so artfully that it, it's believable. So, Talk with us a little bit about how you worked with the uh, the authors of all these essays to ensure some kind of consistency about that that dual nature. Um, some of them came to us pretty well fully formed. I mean, when you're working with somebody like Nancy Holder, you just kind of step back and say, "We're we're going to let the maestro work." <laughs> um, and um, I mean, man, does she just paint a beautiful story here? Um, but others, you know, this is, it was such a fine line between creative ex expository writing and a pastiche. There was a lot of times we'd go back to an author and we'd say, hey, this one line just kind of drifts into pastiche. Or, you know, they'd get really into their topic and all of a sudden they've got dialogue between characters. Well, you know, it's, we got to dial that back and, we, you know, we have to keep trying to present this as, quote unquote fact that you know Sherlock Holmes did interact with this monster or Sherlock Holmes actually worked with this type of entity, that type of thing. Um, and everybody was really amenable to it. Um, everybody was very open to the, to the thing because I mean, we tried to get across from the front like this. We just want to make a fun book, but we want it to be consistent throughout. Hmm. Uh, what about you, Brad? I mean, I know you have a lot of experience uh, with certainly with creative writing, creative podcasting as well. Um, talk a little bit about what you saw in this process. Well, to me, this is, I mean, this is the heart of Sherlockiana is that, you know, I've never been too much on the factual Conan Doyle side of it. I've always been on the Watson wrote the stories side of it. So it's 
to me, it, even though it's, you know, the monsters and the supernatural, it's still the same way that I've always preferred to play the game. And, you know, coming up with mixing a little history with a little fiction, a little fancy with a little fact to produce this kind of effect. So, I mean, that's where I came from on it. And a lot of Sherlockians, I think, have, you know, absorbed a little of that atmosphere over the years and kind of have a knack for it. Yeah, I, I I think it's uh, it's fun to see the the different ways that people go to express that because um, you know there are some people who just are um, completely immersed in the game and um, you know as you say kind of stay true to that Watson as author approach. Others that kind of are more fluid in uh, their analysis. So, um, and, and we all, uh, the, the beauty of, of Sherlockians and, and our own individual weirdness, I think, is we each bring our own flavor, our own perspective that is unique to uh, the canon and to our own ways of interpretation. Um, and, and Bert, I'm going to kind of turn the sights on you a little bit here, as I did in the last episode. Um, you have been long involved with the Cornish Horrors, of Rhode Island and uh, managed to swing that into a major uh, story of which I, I did not see this coming. I mean, I've, obviously I know of your association with uh, the Devil's Foot and uh, Cornish Horrors, etc., but I did not see the twist that you introduced into this story. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of it was there already, and that's part of the beauty of this the fact that, you know, at the time that the cases of Sherlock Holmes were first appearing was a great time for gothic and horror novels. And also, you know, novels that weren't necessarily, stories that weren't necessarily about creatures or the supernatural, but also stories that dove down into human experience and existence, like the, a lot of the stuff that George Gissing wrote. And, you know, you can see it all sort of all over the place. But in the, in the adventure of the Devil's Foot, you know, right from the beginning, Watson says, uh, you know, we've arrived at a spot peculiarly well-suited to the grim humor of my patient. And, and all of this, you know, there are a lot of inconsistencies and oddities about the whole thing Watson tells you about Holmes being suddenly so run down that he needs a complete change of scene and air. And then they decide to go to this bizarre spot on the western coast of England, the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay, that old death trap of sailing vessels with its fringe of black cliffs on which innumerable seamen have met their end. The wise mariner stands far out from that evil place. And so it was really all there, and all I, all I did was put it down on the page, helped, of course, by the fact that Providence, Rhode Island, which is the home of the Cornish horrors, is also the home of H.P. Lovecraft. And oh. actually, uh, my essay explores that connection uh, many fathoms deep, you might say. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, a nice tie-in here that... Um you mentioned uh, Phil Schreffler's help with, uh, with respect to uh, Leoness mm. as uh, 
uh, kind of an, an Atlantis of uh, Southwest England, as it were, the birthplace of Tristan, mm. uh, who was a knight of the Round Table. So here we get into the realms of mythology, and I don't know if you recall the BBC radio adaptation of of uh, the Devil's Foot that Bert Cools did, um, but there was a wonderful integration of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, uh, <laughs> uh, which the the you know the haunting melodies there and the uh, Holmes kind of getting under the spell of the Devil's Foot root, etc., just worked really well as this um, not only Wagnerian but medieval. Uh, uh, mythology was uh, interwoven with the present day of Holmes and Watson. Yeah, I do. Well, that was you know just a lovely, a lovely compliment. But I found that you know uh, so many of these sort of literary, and that's I think that for me in putting the thing together, part of my approach was to see uh, how I could manage the mood. You know, to start with a, a sort of a fairly typical review of inconsistencies and puzzling things and then sort of slip it past the reader you know when you're when you're sort of making the connection to these otherworldly types of uh, possibilities and I was helped by the fact that the devil's foot itself harkens back to the 16th century in lines from a poem by John Donne go and catch a falling star get with child a mandrake root Tell me where all past years are, or who clift the devil's foot. Teach me to hear the mermaids singing, or to keep off envy's stinging. Mm. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of... Um, uh, and I hadn't... It's been a while since I'd thought about that. You know, the etymology of the devil's foot, and it going back to John Donne and things like that. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, there's so much that's right here in front of us, uh, ripe for the picking. Um, and in some ways, you know, Cornwall manages to uh, portray itself as uh, a setting worthy of evil. I mean, it's it's not that far past uh, Dartmoor, really. <laughs> you know, just keep heading, keep heading southwest, and and you'll get there. Um, I think it rivals Dartmoor and, and the Grimpen Mire for uh, setting and, uh, and feeling. Mm. Well, and the, the great asset, too, you have when you're thinking about this from the standpoint of the cases of Sherlock Holmes is the experiment that Holmes so injudiciously conducts with the Radix Pedis Diaboli and this lamp that he's bought, just like Brenda Tregenis's lamp and the fumes and their effect on, on Holmes and Watson. And, that, uh, and it doesn't take very much to look at that experience that they had and to say, well, boy, that reminds me of something that Lovecraft talked about. We're going to pause here a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's a new year, and that means new content. Lots of new content coming from our friends at MX Publishing. Now, it doesn't have to be a new year to find new content from MX Publishing. In fact, if you sign up for their newsletter, you'll get updated every week about some of the latest. For example, every week, Steve MX sends out THIF. Thank Holmes, it's Friday. 
And in the most recent one, there's a news about a Kickstarter campaign, Sherlock Holmes and the unmasking of the Whitechapel horror. Then there are free audiobooks, including The Keys of Death by Gretchen Altebeff, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Volume 1 by David McGregor, and The Bird and the Buddha before Watson, Book 2 by A.S. Croyle. That and Sherlock Sunday. Every week you get an update about new Sherlock Holmes books. All you have to do is go to the wessexpress.com homepage, go all the way down to the bottom, and you'll see a little box there to sign up for the newsletter where you can get information about promotions, new products, and sales. Make sure you check it out and see exactly all of the great content that's coming from our friends at MX Publishing. But I'm curious, you know, in, in um, um, you know, talking to, to Rob and Brad, um, Brad, why don't we start with you? What, in, have, have you always, uh, do you, have you had an interest in monster movies and some of these gothic novels and things like that? Is that something that's oh, been an interest of yours? Yes, definitely. Actually, I can trace my entire love of Sherlock Holmes back to a monster. Uh-huh. Because when I was in junior high, I, I only... That's was, not kind to talk about your teacher that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was very a uh, you know voracious reader, but at that point in my life, I didn't wasn't into fiction yet. I was just into fact. But being a kid, I wanted to read about dinosaurs and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster. And one weekend, I went to the theater, the little local theater called the Strand. Oddly enough, and I saw a preview for this movie that had the Loch Ness monster in it. And Sherlock Holmes was fighting the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. But as bad luck would have it, my parents took us away on a trip the weekend that movie was coming to town. So I didn't get to see that movie for years. And it just always haunted me. This whole thing was Sherlock Holmes and the Loch Ness Monster. So that kind of piqued my interest and kept me looking after Sherlock Holmes for a long time after that. Now, this movie would have been uh, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes, indeed. That was, And it was such a fun thing, because when I finally saw it on network television in the old days when you just had the channels, they actually edited it down, cut out the ballet scene at the first. So then I saw it, was real excited, and then found out, oh, they'd cut some out, saw it with a little more, got the ballet scene, and then found, oh, wait. They cut it so much from the original stuff that Billy Wilder had, and then they started releasing that stuff. So it's been quite a journey following that movie. And and there's a good 25 minutes or so that Billy Wilder had to cut from the original film that's never been fully restored. Oh, yeah. Lost, yeah. Yeah, yeah sadly. Um, well, th- that's really interesting, Brad, because th- those, those days, it was, would have been uh, the early 1970s or so, it seems like the world in general, or at least our world, was filled with this interest in the occult. You had the, you know, this this surge of interest in the Loch Ness monster, in Bigfoot. You know, I remember watching a Six Million Dollar Man episode where Bigfoot was featured uh, in one of them. Um, 
the, the Bermuda Triangle. And this, of course, would have been around the same time that Leonard Nimoy started the In Search Of series, which uh, involved all of these mysterious and otherworldly kinds of things. It seems like it was a, a, the perfect time for the uh, collusion of Sherlock Holmes and the occult. Well, yeah, when you think about, I mean, Conan Doyle really teased us so much with Sherlock Holmes with the Devil's Foot, the Hound of the Baskervilles, the Speckled, all these things that were, you know, on the edge of supernatural, but then Holmes would always clear it up. So, I mean, the fact that he just kept teasing us, the fact that, you know, when those subjects started becoming popular, it's only natural, I guess, that he would kind of head that way. Has anyone ever done Sherlock Holmes meets Bigfoot? <laughs> I don't think so. That's <laughs> yeah. still out there. I think I'm Larry Hagman. I think Larry Hagman did something, but it was set in a shoe store, if I remember. <laughs> oh goodness! Um, yeah. Well, so that is uh, that's a pretty hefty introduction to. Uh, to Sherlock Holmes, Brad. I mean, uh, coming in by way of the Loch Ness monster, um, were you more intrigued or disappointed when you when you delved into Sherlock Holmes? What was your experience early on? Well, I think you know I didn't dive in too much until I hit college, and at that point, you know, after the seven percent solution had proved that Sherlock Holmes could make some money and things were a little looser on the rights, all these pastichures were coming out with, you know, Sherlock Holmes' War of the World, The Adventure of the Peerless Peer. You know, Sherlock Holmes was in some books that had monsters in them and things. So it, that kind of, I segued pretty cleanly into pastiches that didn't have monsters then and the canon itself. So that's kind of what brought me back to, you know, and I've never been disappointed, I don't think. Mm. And and Rob, what about you and monsters? Um, no, I'm the complete opposite of Brad. Uh, monsters have just never really done much for me. I grew up in the age of you know the Freddy Krueger movies, and I watched a few, and I thought, okay, that was fun, and then never really cared to follow up um, with classic literature. I'm just now in my mid 40s starting to appreciate, you know, just how well things like Frankenstein were written. I. Mm tried reading Frankenstein about 10 years ago and remember thinking, this is terrible. Why do people like this? <laughs> um, uh, so it, it, it took me a long time to learn to appreciate stuff like that. Thank God for like Lust Klinger's annotated that helped you mm. understand those things. Cause I didn't have an English teacher to kind of walk me through that stuff. So the monster bug never really uh, bit me. Um, but, but I guess, the uh, the editing and the analytical side of it was what was really interesting to me with this project. So I think Brad and I worked really well where he's he's the really creative guy. And I was like, OK, but we got to stay you know, kind of somewhere in between these lines. And Brad's like, you know what, let's let's color everything. I'm a horrible editor. So Rob, Rob is the best one on that i you know i've edited many journals and things but i'm just it's not my natural thing i'm the one that's just going to go off on the crazy idea i i understand your pain <laughs> and what about <laughs> what about some of the classic horror films do either one of you have any uh, fondness for those you know you mentioned frankenstein of course but in the 1930s and 40s universal did all these whole run of horror pictures 
the Invisible Man, the werewolf, um, Dracula goes here and there and everywhere. Oh, yeah, the theater where I saw the private life thing, they would run Saturday matinees for the parents to get rid of their kids and run those old black and white movies in the theater, along with Godzilla and anything else. So, yeah, I grew up on a steady diet of old classic monsters. I had the old Ravel models of Frankenstein and the mummy, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I just missed all of that. I was busy with, you know, G.I. Joes and things. But <laughs> well, but the... But the good news is, I mean, look at your experience, you know, with Frankenstein. Um, it's not too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's never too late. Um, you know, it's, what's interesting to me is the universal uh, monster movies were kind of coming off of their high late, late 1930s or so. That, of course, is when Sherlock Holmes was introduced by way of Basil Rathbone. And... Um, it, it it didn't take too long into the 1940s as they kept the uh, franchise alive with a lot of these monsters that, oh, they would just happen to meet these two guys by the name of Abbott and Costello. Um, and it, it seems like there could have been a crossover back then with the mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein and the invisible man and, and, and the rest with Sherlock Holmes, if universal were really up for it. Yeah. I think it's um, a shame think... that, Oh, go ahead. Ron. No, go ahead. I okay. was just going to, I think it's a shame that when you think of all the kind of movies, Basil Rathbone wound up in later in his career <laughs> I mean, with the hammer film and different things that, I mean, I saw something just this weekend. My wife had this thing on called The Black Sleep. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's got Basil Rathbone, Tor Johnson. There's an alligator man. There's just crazy stuff going on in that thing. And, I mean, it's a great wild horror movie. And here's, you know, the guy that played Sherlock Holmes right in the middle of it. So I think there was a natural thing there that just never quite happened. Hmm. Well, he got he did get close, Rathbone, in the comedy of terrors. And that film you mentioned, you know, is is a. Uh, um, I just I just love all these old movies, but in the comedy of terrors, you know, you had Peter Lorre and Vincent Price and Karloff and Rathbone, who was playing. Uh, uh, he was playing their landlord, I think, Mister Black, and he was forever being put in a coffin because he appeared to be dead, but he actually had narcolepsy, <laughs> so he would always. Rathbone would always wake up and in 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 the box and say, "What place is this?" <laughs> and I think that's the well, last line of the picture, as I remember it. Wasn't Rathbone in uh, one of the Frankenstein sequels? Whether it was like oh, Son, Son of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah, he was Son, Son of yeah. Frankenstein. Sure, he yeah. was. Uh, yeah, but, but not as Sherlock Holmes. That's the only no, thing. No, no, so. no. Oh. It, it's a shame they didn't uh, put uh, Sherlock Holmes in. Uh, his later movie, Hillbillies in a Haunted House. <laughs> that would have been, oh, really would have elevated that one. That is one of the all-time worst horror movies. Um, and, you know, while we're at it, we missed the opportunity to see uh, Abbott and Costello meet Sherlock Holmes. Well, well yeah, but you see, you couldn't do that because, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and all of the people that Abbott and Costello met are all fictional and Holmes, of course, is real. So you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't really do that in a movie. All right, make any Costello sense. meet Basil Rathbone. <laughs> maybe, maybe Sherlock Holmes could have solved the mystery of who's on first. 
<laughs> I like that. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Um, well, why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about some of the features here in uh, in the book? Again, I will leave it uh, to the discretion of you two as editors as to how much you want to give away. But in addition to Bert's uh, allusion to Lovecraft, well, what other uh, compelling stories do we have from the monstrous opus of Sherlock Holmes, monstrum opus of Sherlock Holmes? I really enjoy just the scope and sequence of so many different things. We've got, um, you know, Paul Thomas Miller, who, you know, when he puts his pen to paper, like you're getting something worth reading. And he went into ancient Greek mythology with his, um, you know, I won't give anything away with there. But then on the flip side, we've got somebody that connects a very unlikely story to the Wizard of Oz. Um, And both arguments are, you know, about as plausible as you could be in connecting Sherlock Holmes to these monsters. But um, every, I, I went back and reread the essays because it's been a while since we put this book together. I went back and reread them yesterday and today. And I was just like, Oh wow. I forget just like every chapter is just a hard left turn into something completely different. Yeah. Let's, I mean, let's, we give away a little bit of the range. I mean, we go from like, yeah. you know, the terror of blue gun, blue John gap to, Ghostbusters mythology to the Tommyknockers, Aboriginal goddesses. I mean, it's it's all over the map. Like you say, a lot of you know sharp left turns. Yeah, we, I mean, we've got a, senti- a, a sentient house. Um, you know, a basilisk, which I didn't even know what it was at the time. I had to look it up. Um, yeah, just so much fun. And you know, two different authors, M.K. Um, Wiseman and, and Phil Burgum, dip into other Conan Doyle stories and connect uh, homes to the monsters that appear in those. Yeah. And that's, that's what strikes me is Conan Doyle uh, was, uh, he really was into the occult in a number of the stories that he wrote. And he managed to draw a fairly solid line between those true occult stories and the Sherlock Holmes. Although, as you mentioned before, Brad, there is a little bit of leakage into uh, Sussex Vampire, Creeping Man, Hound of the Baskerville, Speckled Man, etc. But talk a little bit about Conan Doyle's skill with stories of the occult. Well, that's that is one thing. I mean, like I was saying earlier, he, I mean, he brings it out in the Sherlock Holmes stories, but then you know he has his own horror stories that he's done. You know, that are coming a little more to the fore now as people are. Like the Terror of Blue John Gap's been getting some attention lately that is kind of nice. And Horror of the Heights has uh, always been a good one. Um, Lot 249, yeah. uh, you know, one of the original mummy stories. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, this this really was a, a def- one of the defining elements of Victorian era fiction. And Horror of the Heights is a good one because it also locates the events and the action around the science of the day. And in the science of the day, air travel was very new. And it's difficult for people in the 21st century to sort of put themselves in that position. But in those days, it would not be clear to you what there was at 30,000 feet because nobody had ever been there. And so Conan Doyle's story, The Horror of the Heights, is all about a pilot who appears to encounter pilots who appear to encounter 
awful terrors and ghouls at 30,000 feet when they fly that high. Now, they didn't. In, in those planes of the day, they really couldn't have gotten to 30,000 feet. But, um, you know, it's really a chilling little story. Now, spoiler alert, they were Chinese spy balloons, right? <laughs> no, they were weather balloons. <laughs> Whether or not you're going to shoot course. it down, we're setting up a balloon. <laughs> And uh, I think that's where so much horror can really lie, is at that cutting edge of what is known and what's unknown. You know, the the way that Doyle wrote, he was always very you know prescient in what is happening now, whether it's the trends in crime or trends in science. And he would always try to look, it seemed like one or two steps past that. And that's where you get some of this really creative stuff, even if it seems very dated to some of us now. You know, something like Horror of the Heights or Blue John Gap, you know, like looking down in these caverns. Um, today, people would think, well, you just take a flashlight down there. You have to really put yourself <laughs> in that mindset of that wasn't an option back then. But that's no different than people thinking of like the alien movies um, when they first came out, thinking how terrifying that would be. And now we're just like, now nah, we know that doesn't exist. I mean, so um, he, the man was all. He seemed, not always, but so often was at the cutting edge of a lot of different things. Yeah, and I, I think, Rob, that's where, uh, I mean, even with Sherlock Holmes, you know, I mean, not only the cutting edge of, of crime, but the setting in, in London, the realism there, it blurred the lines. And that's why, that's why people would write to Sherlock Holmes in real life. They would write letters to 221B Baker Street. You know, Abbey National Bank used to have to have a, an entire uh, full-time role, a secretary that did nothing but answer letters that arrived at their address because of Conan Doyle's skill in merging fantasy with reality. And it worked with the Sherlock Holmes stories. It worked with some of his horror stories. Uh, and that, I think, is what makes him such a great storyteller. Yeah, I think you yeah, could really like actually come up with a whole book of monster stories just from Conan Doyle. If you think about Lost World and some of those were, I mean... Yeah. And Victorian London seemed like it was such a hotbed of these great monstrous tales, whether it's, you know, Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula coming out about then. But also you could look at, like, the monster inside of you. The, the Shanna Carter uh, connected the Milverton story to Oh my God! Dorian Gray. Of Dorian Gray. Thank you. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray and really says like, yeah, there's the metaphysical element, but the real monster was his behavior and how, how it went from there. Um, and there were so many different books that we thought, oh, somebody could take off on this. Somebody could take off on this. It seemed to be just uh, an embarrassment of riches for great literature. Back then. Mm. Well, uh, the book is an embarrassment of riches that is for certain both within and without it is the monstrum opus of sherlock holmes edited by brad kefauver and rob nunn uh, gentlemen thank you once again for joining us here and sharing your tales of horror on i hear of sherlock everywhere well thank you thanks Interesting. You know, in this conversation, it's the first time I think we've talked to an editor who 
really, there was some text and some weight there around exactly what the editorial process was. And I'm always interested in that. And I think um, the guidance that was given to the writers, you know, was really worthwhile. I thought that was very interesting. What a great topic this is. Well, it, it really is. And, you know, I, I meant to ask them uh, if there will be a volume two, because it seems like uh, there's room for it, given uh, what we've seen here, given the enthusiasm behind it. Um, I suppose it uh, also depends on uh, the response to this volume, whether uh, a second one will come out as well. So, um, But, hey, as long as I have you here, Bert, yes. um, I wanted you to turn to your essay toward the end of your essay, and I wondered if you might read us out of this section with uh, that lovely poem that Les Daniels wrote for the Cornish Horrors. Oh, I'd be pleased to. Thank you for asking. Well, Les is a much-missed departed member of the Cornish Horrors who was a screenwriter, wrote books about great comic characters like Sherlock Holmes and Batman and Wonder Woman. And so I really commend folks to go to ABE Books and see if you can find some of the things that Les wrote. But years ago, he wrote this poem called Cornwall's Secluded Coast, which we recite at every meeting of the Cornish Horrors. The wise mariner stands far out from that evil place where blind fear marks a woman's frozen face. Was she frightened by a demon or a ghost? that crept along Cornwall's secluded coast. Something moves among the bushes in the dark, and three are stricken senseless with no mark. To what inhuman thing did they play host at night upon Cornwall's secluded coast? Black cliffs and ancient ruins mark the place where the master solved his strangest case and found a drug more menacing than most imported to Cornwall's secluded coast. The atmosphere is stuffy in the room and even heroes contemplate their doom when devil's foot root powder starts to roast in flames along Cornwall's secluded coast. The greatest horrors lurk inside the mind. But spirits sometimes help the mind unwind. So, fellow horrors, let us drink a toast in honor of Cornwall's secluded coast. What was Conan Doyle really like? Thanks to American journalists, now we know. And you can know, too, when you get your copy of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, Volume 6, just published in January. Volume 6 covers the first month of Conan Doyle's tour of the United States in October 1894. Just four weeks, but it produced 230 pages of articles, interviews, reports from his lectures, and much more. And because of American interviewers... It's the first time we get really close to Conan Doyle the man. They tell us what he looks like, his way of moving and talking, and all those little things that form a three-dimensional image of the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Get your copy 
of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, Volume 6, edited and annotated by Matthias Bostrom and Mark Alberstadt at wessexpress.com today. From the seclusion of Cornwall to the relative occlusion of everyone's favorite Sherlock and Quiz Show. That's right, it's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to tell us which Sherlock Holmes story we're talking about. If you recall, the last time around these parts, we asked you to solve this clue. The linguist quite intimidated by an evil-looking truncheon, was left at Wandsworth Common, about a mile from Clapham Junction. Uh, Bert, oh yes. Bert, uh, yes. speaking of the horrors, yes. uh, do you know which story we're talking about here? Yes, it involves the royal family, and it was the theft of Queen Victoria's favorite knitting pattern. That's the case Watson called... The Blue Cardigan Plans. Missed it by that much. <laughs> no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, we did not manage it this time. I, th that's astounding. Uh, I Would know. you believe? Would you believe? <laughs> no. I'll be over here in the cone of silence if you need me. No, it's the uh, Conan of silence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we were, well, let, let's turn to our friend Eric Deckers. Uh, he says, I've, I've solved it. It's the story where Dr. Watson finally met Sherlock's older, corpulenter sibling. It's the story called, He Ain't Heavy, He's My, No, Wait, He's Heavy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hold on i'm confusing this story with the holly song from 1969 this is the story the greek interpreter oh. yes yes eric the greek interpreter that is indeed what we're looking for uh well uh bert you didn't manage to get it but we did have a number of other people who did so we're going to bring out the big prize wheel and give it a spin Slowing down, landing on number 29, 29. And that corresponds to Shanna Carter. Congratulations. We will be getting you your prize, which uh, I believe is a copy of uh, The Haven Horror. So... Stay tuned for that. Well, in this case, we have another prize available for this canonical couple. The prize is a copy of The Monstrum Opus of Sherlock Holmes, edited by Brad Kefauver and Rob Nunn. And here is your clue. Watson knew the man who came to Holmes quite agitated. The miscreant may rise to heights once he's been emigrated. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. All right. What a great show. <laughs> I can't believe we've done this.
Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, we keep cranking them out. Well, and Good. we have more in store in the weeks ahead. We have a lot of great guests lined up. You want to make sure you are subscribed to us on whatever podcast platform you happen to listen to us on. If it's on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or wherever, just make sure you are following us or hit that subscribe button and uh, we will come back to you in about 15 days time actually this is february so we'll be back even sooner than that won't we oh right right yeah this is uh this is the month where we don't have a 30th so our shows uh drop on the 15th and 30th of every month except for february it's the cruelest month isn't it is it really the cruelest month I don't know. I'm uh, as far as a podcast editor is concerned. Yes, it is. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but um, yeah. And if you are not following us on Trifles, our other show that we do on a weekly basis, and we discuss some of the minutia in the Sherlock Holmes stories, check that out. It's at SherlockHolmesPodcast.com, or just search for Trifles in your podcast catcher. We'd be delighted to have you over there as a subscriber as well. Well, Bert, do you have anything else to say for yourself? No, nothing. Done. All used all the words. <laughs> That's, that is fantastic. Well, this is the worldly and wordly Scott Monty. <laughs> and this is the word-free Bert Wolder. And together, we say... The, the Games, games of Foot! <laughs> Ah, the, the games of foot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Um, now, uh, well, you know, here's one I, I missed. Uh, where should I tell people to go buy this? Oh, it's on Amazon. Okay, perfect. Yep. Plus, Anywhere. I'm going to be selling them at 221 Beacon, too, so they can Excellent. pick up one there okay. in person if they want we will add that back in. So I and they can get a uh, Nathaniel Barker Harris autograph. <laughs> <laughs>